hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 17. Chapter 17. Cease Your Motion Bounding billows, cease your motion, bear me not so swiftly o'er. A quote from Mary Robinson. The roving life is a succession of joys and sorrows. To see new places and peoples, one must say goodbye to the old, and looking back at St. Lucia, our home for five months, we felt a little of this tinge of regret. The island, too, was frowning, and dark clouds settled like beetling brows over the mountains and drove a strong wind up from astern. In one's enthusiasm for palm-green shores, one tends to forget that the Caribbean can be a very uncomfortable place for a small boat. The seas are often short and steep, and on this occasion at least, Content was restless from the moment she left harbour. As we drew away from the lee of St. Lucia, the waves came slightly from the quarter and made her writhe with a twisted lurching movement and kick and pull at her helm. There are times when life on a small boat seems to have nothing to recommend it, times when the days are only punctuation marks in the journey and the night watches are dreary, drowsy periods. There are passages on which we travelled only to arrive, and this passage from St. Lucia was one of them. On the first night out, I heard Don calling down the hatch and I staggered out on deck. A length of wire rope with a block at its end was swinging round the mast. The runner had carried away. We made a temporary repair to last till daylight, and then Don spliced the new eye in the frayed end. But it parted again, so we brought out a piece of heavy warp and a rope tackle, which held for the rest of the passage. By the next day, we were all suffering from seasickness to some extent. Ernest had taken Dramamine and was suffering least, but even Don felt off form during most of the trip, probably owing to some other internal ailment, and of course I had bouts of it from the first few days and work in the galley was a nightmare. There was one consolation. Content was covering 120 or 30 miles a day, but to me the price was too high. I would far rather do 80 miles a day in comfort than twice that and be longing for land. Jamaica lay 900 miles away, so for the first time since the Atlantic crossing, we settled down to our sea routine. We had, of course, organised ourselves sufficiently to provide food in bad weather, but it was usually the good old standby, stew, the yachtsman's staff of life. By mutual consent, we ate in the cockpit under conditions such as these, the food being put in a basket with the necessary cutlery and crockery passed up. Indeed, we seldom went below at all in this sort of weather, and Ernest and I always slept on deck. Swizzle would come aft and stand by, hopefully, for he knew that any empty tins would be handed over to him to be cleaned out, and for this his long snout seemed to be perfectly adapted. His meal came in the evening, and as soon as the cook started work in the galley, Swizzle would sit by the forehatch, peering intently down and watching every movement. At any other time, the sound of a tin being banged against the hatch would rouse him from the very deepest slumber. Though brought up at sea, he retained the instinct for burying his special treasures in the folds of the spare mainsail. It was not unusual for one to find a piece of gristle or a bone carefully concealed in one's sleeping bag. We have often been asked what there is to do on passage and how we manage to pass the time. Time is, unfortunately, very capable of passing on its own and leisure was always our most sought-after luxury. 
Before performing any other duties, we each had to spend eight hours a day at the helm, which corresponds to a normal working day at home. In addition, there was the cooking and navigation to be done, tasks such as sail trimming and emergency repairs to be attended to, and one sleep to be made up in scattered periods. In fine weather, this still left us with some time to ourselves, though not very much. In rough weather, there was a certain mental wooliness which made it difficult to concentrate on mental work for very long. In such weather, we spent many hours in the cockpit watching the seas passing or discussing the weather, and as long as we were sailing the boat and making progress, we considered that we were doing enough. It is in rough weather that the sea is a lonely place, and only once on this crossing from St. Lucia did we see another ship. She was a West Indian trading schooner that reached across our bows and made a magnificent picture. Anything else which comes to share your solitude is welcomed as a friend, a porpoise perhaps, or the lights of a passing ship. There is a sense of companionship in other lights, however distant, and you watch the passing ship as she changes her bearing. You begin to wonder where she is from and whither bound. If you are cold and wet, you look at the rows of lighted portholes and envy the passengers in their bunks or sitting at the supper table. But if the night is fine and the stars are out and the windward sky is clear, you pity those passengers. You pity them because they must go where they are sent. They cannot break off to visit some little place just because it beckons. We at least could do that, and this time we did. When we had been lying alongside the Earth of Rogers in British Guiana, we had arranged a Christmas rendezvous with them. We had picked the place arbitrarily from a chart because it seemed a beautiful little bay off the beaten track, on the southern coast of Haiti. Content had not been able to keep that appointment, but Tom and Diana had, and reported that Bay Flamance was as lovely in fact as it had appeared on paper. We were passing close to it now. Why not call in and see it for ourselves? In any case, life at the moment was wet and bumpy, and we could do with the rest. So we reshaped our course towards the southern coast of Dominica to check our chronometer, and on the fifth day out saw the rocky pile of Alta Vila, which lies off the coast. The coastline slipped out of sight again as we came opposite Haiti. It seemed right that our first contact with this mysterious and hidden land should be through the lightning which forked and shimmered in the brooding storm clouds that hung over the southern coast. Throughout the night we watched the display, and in the morning we saw the land itself emerging fresh and green from the haze. The water was smooth now, and we sailed through huge patches of seaweed, but the wind was light. Coastal navigation is a series of disappointments, for every headland hides yet another behind it. It seemed that we would never reach our goal, but in the afternoon we saw the sweep of coast which held the port of Oques and the entrance to Bay Flamands. We started the motor to reach the bay before dark, and tried to glean some information from the small-scale chart. We had no chart of the bay itself, only a sketch which Tom had done on the back of an envelope, and we had some difficulty in locating the narrow entrance, but we found it at last, stretching ahead of us for two or three miles like a fjord. We motored in, slanted towards one of the banks and anchored. Bay Flamance was an enchanted place. Perhaps it was the contrast with the discomforts of the past week, because we came in with our stomachs a little empty, and not because of the wooded hills, the white huts which slept among the trees, or the dark mountains which leaned back and looked somberly over the scene. But that evening, with the sails stowed and our awning set, we sat on deck with burning mugs of coffee, breathing in the peace of the twilight and watching the lonely lights which appeared from the fishermen's cottages, and in the dusk 
content lay with her chain hanging vertically, as silent as the stars. Through the distant entrance to the bay, we could see next morning the sweep of the coast and the hills beyond okay. A few fishing boats lay on the satin water, moored to their own reflections. As the day awoke, some of the natives paddled out in curious little dugout canoes whose sterns were carefully shaped into transoms. The locals who came to see us spoke a French patois almost unintelligible to us. One of them was clearly a man of some standing. He was tall and good-looking, with a mixed-race heritage, and his name was Ludovic. He remembered the Arthur Rogers, the boat with the beautiful Senora aboard, he said. We were far from tourist influence here, and it seemed that the peasants and fishermen came to see us because they were interested rather than because they hoped to gain anything. They were anxious to show us round the scattered little community, and headed by Ludovic and the local school teacher, we made a tour of the dusty footpaths and saw the open-air bakery and the old sugar mill with its cumbersome wooden cogs and the neat little houses whose beams and posts contained no nails but were jointed with sockets and pegs. The people grow their own tobacco and dry the leaves by hanging them on sticks slung across a corner of the porch. They will select and offer a leaf to you so that you may roll your own cigar. You tear one side of the leaf from the centre stem, roll it into shape and give the end a twist to prevent it from unravelling. With a little practice, we were able to produce smokable cigars and grew to like their flavour. Most of the little houses were surprisingly neat, well whitewashed and cleanly thatched. Some had small concrete areas in front of them where flowering bushes grew in circular beds, and here and there we saw a patch of carefully tended green sward in the centre of a group of cottages. But behind this tranquillity lay a century of upheaval and bloodshed. A century and a half ago, the locals and mulattoes joined together, symbolised in the blue and red of their flag today, to drive the French from their country. But prosperity did not come with independence, and there were dark periods of despotic rule under their emperors. Christophe is the figure who seems to dominate Haitian history, just as the massive castle he built on an almost inaccessible mountain dominates the country around it. The huge stones used in the building of this castle were dragged up the mountainside by teams of 30 men. It is said that one team could move their stone no farther. Christophe's answer was to take out one man from the team and order him to be killed. Still the stone could not be moved, so another man shared the fate of the first. The stone was finally moved by three-quarters of the original team. On another occasion, to demonstrate the discipline of his men, Christophe ordered a squad of soldiers to march over the brink of a precipice. There has been a great deal of progress since those dark days, but the country still retains its atmosphere of mystery and magic. We were very much aware of this when, from the darkened decks of content, we heard the drums throbbing through the forest. One evening, we were invited to Ludovic's cottage for supper. A torch had been borrowed from the schoolmaster and was placed to shine over the table. Ludovic and his young wife had apparently already eaten, for they did not eat with us but sat waiting to attend to our supper and grinned with pleasure when we complimented them on the clean white tablecloth and the tenderness of the chicken they had killed for us. A partition divided the hut into two rooms, and from the other we could hear the cry of the recently produced baby. On the top of the partition burned a small oil lamp, and after supper, when the electric torch had been put out, the small naked flame lent a soft light to the room and hid the corners in shadow. We arranged our stools round the white walls, a little girl rose and offered hers to an old woman who had come in. Ludovic settled himself comfortably against the wall with a battered guitar, 
picked out a few chords and tinkled them into some of the tunes of his country. A young man brought out a pair of maracas and rattled an accompaniment to his singing. Eager faces paused in the doorway to listen for a few minutes. An infant, scarcely able to walk, shuffled a funny little step of his own in time to the music. We sat back and rolled cigars from the dried leaves. Then Ludovic's wife stood up and sang a patois tune, which is sung by the peasants in many of the islands. It is a beautiful, plaintive little love story, simple and lilting, and suited perfectly the half-light atmosphere and the pretty, tremulous soprano voice. The following evening, we invited the party aboard Content, where the concert was continued. The maracas player had brought a curious homemade instrument called a manabula. It consisted of a wooden box in which a small opening had been cut. Across the opening lay the free ends of several lengths of steel spring. The player plucked at these strips producing throbs of varying pitch and at the same time beat a fascinating tattoo with the heel of his hands on the box itself. We had originally planned to stay in Bay Flamands for only 24 hours, but it was hardly surprising that we decided to increase our stay to four days. Only on our first visit ashore did we have any trouble. We were suddenly accosted by a villainous-looking individual wearing a scowl on his face and a massive revolver at his belt. He rode a weary-looking mule, and the semblance of a uniform proclaimed him to be a police representative of some sort. Who were we? He wanted to know. What were we doing? And was that a camera we were carrying? Had we seen the customs? The stream of questions came out in code, which we decided was the local patois. A small boy who spoke Spanish came to our rescue, and with his help we managed to talk round in circles for a quarter of an hour while we tried to size up the situation, judiciously choosing not to understand any questions which we thought might bring any point to the conversation. At length, reinforcements of superior calibre arrived for the policeman, and breaking through the gathering throng, we all paddled out to content. We were about 50 yards from the boat when there were indications of great agitation among the officers. We saw that they were pointing to our ensign. Ah, Anglais, they cried, and with a great deal of ooing and ooing and waving of arms, which imperiled the stability of the dinghy, we learned that, hearing us speaking Spanish, they had thought we were Costa Ricans or something similar. From this moment, the visit was purely social, though none of them would drink or smoke and pistols and sabres were buttoned away. We were even provided with an official guide, a sort of part-time constable of ancient vintage. But whether his duty was to protect us from the population, or the population from us, we can never find out. Certainly, he expected no money from us, and after the first two days we seldom saw him except to nod good morning. We had no Haitian currency, so a system of barter had to be inaugurated. We had found that tins of sardines were popular in fishing communities for some unfathomable reason, and in St. Lucia we had bought a stock of the cheapest variety. Under the Anglo-Haitian rate of exchange which was first developed during those four days in the bay, one tin of sardines was equivalent to two loaves of soda bread or four eggs. Two empty cigarette tins with lids could buy one egg, and an empty rum bottle with cork brought a substantial pile of cashew nuts, a smaller pile, of course, if the bottle had no cork. These provisions, with some fruit, gave us our fresh food while we were there. We would willingly have spent another month there among our friends, and everyone was sad when we had to leave. Ludovic came aboard with a last-minute gift of drinking coconuts, which were heaped into our cockpit. Then we sailed down to the calm water, into a boisterous sea. Content, close-hauled across the bay on which Okay lay, thrashed through the seas with her lee rail awash, sending plumes of spray over her decks 
as she plunged. During the afternoon, we dipped into the shelter behind a headland while we changed from fore and after rig to square, then ran before the wind towards Jamaica, 200 miles away. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.